Salabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impressions of the wines. Today, our subject is the Hemelinarda Valley. It's a small area, just over 400 acres of vines, divided among three different wards. The name means heaven and earth, and it's a bit of a drive down the coast near the town of Armanus. Despite that, it's the fourth most visited wine region in South Africa, after Constantia, Stellenbosch, and Franschhoek. People come for the whale watching, Hermanus is a seaside resort town with the best land-based whale watching in the world, and they also come for the valley's wines, especially the Chardonnays and Pinot Noirs. The valley's story begins with one winery. I'm Anthony Hamilton Russell, the owner of Hamilton Russell Vineyards, and the founder and owner of Ashbourne, and the founder and owner of Southern Wright. Three properties located in the now Himalanada Valley, southeast of Cape Town, close to the cool South Atlantic Ocean. I'm in my 30th year in charge of Hamilton Russell Vineyards, and we are just celebrating our 40th vintage with the 2020s. My father, Tim Hamilton Russell, the founder of Hamilton Russell Vineyards, was just entering his 40s, doing very well in advertising up in Johannesburg and passionate about wine and starting to engage with wine, other wine-interested people. He was doing advertising for Stellenbosch Farmers Winery and Bosch and Dahl, amongst other properties later on, and had a bunch of wine-interested people that helped him shape a vision for what he wanted to do. I think literally from his 20s, he wanted to go farming, and that turned into wine farming very strongly in his late 30s and early 40s, to the point where even in Johannesburg, where he lived, he made a a little bit of pinotage and a cabernet blend in his garden. And it actually wasn't that bad. But he hooked up with somebody who would be one of his more influential wine mentors called Deso Pongratz, who's had a fantastically popular South African Cup Classique named after him. He was a viticulturalist of Hungarian origin, quite a character, very deep thinker. And Dezo Pongratz was charged with projects for the company he worked for to look at new possible areas within South Africa. My father, wanting to go wine farming and having the disposable income and it being incredibly tax efficient back in the mid-70s to farm, you could deduct it against personal income, which above a certain level was taxed at nearly 80%. It, It made a lot of sense to proceed at that point. His first point of call was really Stellenbosch, which was quite obvious. That's the heart of the South African wine industry. But at this time, his relationship with Dezo Pongratz had grown to the point where Dezo sowed the seeds in his head of looking in a completely new area, having looked around Bredarsdorp for possible experimental plantings. And my father took that to heart bravely. At that point, the quota system was in place. In other words, if you bought a property without a quota, it was illegal to make wine. I think my father at that time didn't need the money from wine farming. He didn't expect any money from wine farming. And he was prepared to take a risk that those laws would change. And in fact, he ended up having quite a large part to play in the change of those quota laws. So with Dezo, they developed a new vision. And that vision really was to head further south. If you think back on the 70s, our obsession now is with terroir, with soil structure, soil type, to the point where 
you'd rather have the right soil in the hot Swartland than the wrong soil in the cool Himalanada. And it's more about what that soil does to the style of the wine. But in the, in the mid-70s in the New World, people thought about latitude, they thought about temperature, they thought about grape variety and winemaking, and very seldom about how the actual specific structure of the soil would influence the style of a wine. So my father was looking for southerly properties, and he was also looking for something cooler in which to plant all the noble grape varieties other than Riesling, which even then was a tough sell. And he started looking round towards Ogalis, ended up in Hermanus, a little town 120 kilometers southeast of Cape Town. It's a known seaside resort town. And this is where the logic and the methodical aspect of the search gives way to a little bit of emotional content. A retrospective story applying to the history of a property always suggests a little bit more careful thought when all of us in the wine industry would have to admit to quite uh, a lot of serendipity and good fortune. My father was a great lover of Bordeaux and the relatively new soil type for viticulture was planted with several noble grapes but had something to say for Noir and Chardonnay that was just different, unusual, uncannily Burgundian, for want of a better analogy. Coupled with that, Deso Pongratz was particularly fond of the idea of Pinot Noir. He had seen it not really gain traction in South Africa. Marathi is a wonderfully historic farm. They, they were making Pinot Noir. Cunnancorp was making Pinot Noir. I think Millist was making a Pinot Noir. And Rustenburg was making a Pinot Noir. But no one really had resonated internationally with that grape from South Africa. Deso Pongratz felt that that could change. If somebody found a cool enough site, and again, soil didn't come into it in those days. And one of his searches around Bradarsdorp, Pinot was very much in his mind. And I think he did influence my father quite significantly on the choice of that as one of the initial varieties to plant and in reasonably significant quantities. I think the time my father really switched his affiliations most clearly to Burgundy was after the first release of Hamilton Russell 1981 Pinot Noir. It just stood out as a wine of great interest. So having taken over Hamilton Russell, now it's coming up for 30 years ago, September 1991, I wanted to narrow the range to only what we did best. Our property showed us that Pinot Noir and Chardonnay were those varieties. So my decision was not based on any particular deep insight, but the application of my palate, listening to very experienced palates elsewhere and listening to our own terroir. But we felt that our area was particularly suited to those two grape varieties for a number of reasons. At the time, the narrow valley carved out by the Onrus River was one of three river valleys that made up the Walker Bay Ward, with Botchwever on one side and the Klein River Valley on the other. The entire area is part of what we now call the Cape South Coast. Regulations meant vineyards were few and far between until as late as 1992, the required quotas for vineyards were quite rare in the area. But that year, the KWV dropped the quota system, and enterprising growers could plant vineyards wherever they saw fit. The cool, maritime vineyards of the coast attracted a lot of investment, and the different valleys of Walker Bay began to distinguish themselves. By the time we reached 2000, there were properties popping up like mushrooms around us within Walker Bay, in the Stanford area, in the Bot River area, and... 
Walker Bay was losing relevance as an area of relatively homogenous terroir, which is what a wine ward is supposed to be. Projecting forward, I believed we were unlikely to be known for any particular varietal specialization. When I think of Bot River, I think of exceptional Chenin Blanc and actually very good Pinotage and some really lovely Syrah. But I don't necessarily think Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Whereas when I think of our area, I think of Pinot and Chardonnay. When I think of Stanford, still a bit of a question mark as to where they will settle, but it probably won't be Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So we wanted to uncouple ourselves from that. We felt that eventually the Walker Bay name would not represent what we stood for in our immediate area. And at that time, there were also several other producers of Pinot and Chardonnay cropping up around Hamilton Russell Vineyards. So worrying about this in about 2000, I discussed it with Dave Johnson of Newton Johnson. And by 2003, I thought we needed to take action. Dave shared my views. And we were successful in 2004 in having Walker Bay turned into a district, which would enable us to create smaller, more relevant units of appellation within that district. By 2006, we had created Himalanada Valley and Upper Himalanada Valley. I was lucky enough to have registered and owned the name Himalanada Valley. And I was able to donate that to our area and to some extent create terms under which it might be used. We needed a degree of accuracy and authenticity in the delimitation of those appellations. And as is always the case when boundaries are drawn, there's a degree of conflict here and there. But the net effect was at the same time that the Willamette Valley under Ken Wright's leadership had broken itself up into several sub-AVAs to the great benefit, in my opinion, of the followership amongst real fine wine lovers for Oregon Pinot. At that same time, we were doing that in Himalanada, and I'm quite proud that we were really ahead of the curve. So I'm proud of what we achieved. And by June 2009, we had incorporated Himalanada Ridge. It was a bit complicated because it actually fell in the next river valley and we were worried where the whole thing would stop. But with a joint commitment for all the growers to defend those limits and not extend them, we now have three appellations, each with beautiful, subtle stylistic differences in their expression of Pinot and Chardonnay, a very strong varietal focus on Pinot and Chardonnay, and a wonderful common sense of camaraderie and spirit and quest. And I, I would like to say that if you're interested in South African Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, it's the Himalanada area. My name is Tracy Martin, and I'm the owner and winemaker from Creation Wines uh, up in the Himalanada Ridge. We was basically the first to establish the, on that ridge, there was basically a neighbor farm of mine with a little bit of apples and I think pears, but it was pretty much new for vineyard growing. But when we took off one, two years later, there was uh, two neighbors. They also started heading into the business of planting vineyards up in the ridge. We started in 2002 when I bought this virgin piece of land in the upper stretch of this Helen Arten region. And we basically decided to get the project off the ground in 2003 with the first planting of vineyards. To make a long story a little bit short, I was working after my studies as interns in South Africa in 95 and in 98. And 
we actually was running our own wine estate in Switzerland, so we didn't really have the intention to ending up in South Africa. But um, we should never say no in life when you don't really can predict things. So when I came and I married Carolyn in 99, Carolyn is South African, so we came on a yearly base back uh, to South Africa to visit their family. And Carolyn's family was uh, involved in the wine business. Carolyn's uncle is Peter from Busha Finlayson in the Hemmenarden Valley. And in 2002, over Bry in February, he mentioned to me there's a most exceptional piece of land up for sale in the upper section of this valley. Off we went, and two or three days later, we bought that piece of land, and the rest is then the history. Yeah? Virgin land gives you a kind of advantage, and of course, also disadvantage in a way that you will not start obviously off with an old vineyard. We took that gamble to go on virgin land to the fact that I was still relatively young at the time. So uh, I think you most probably just get it once in a lifetime, the opportunity to really start from scratch to build and bring up a farm and still reach the benefit of even experience yourself, the vineyard in a slightly older stage. So I was just 30 years old when we could start that project. And the peace of mind, you can really then start to get all the experience you accumulated over the years. When I started the project, for me, there was basically three major points. I wanted to tick the box before I would be interested to start the project. Point one was for me, it was very critical in a place like South Africa, who experience droughts quite often. I wanted to be in a place where I have a secure, steady supply of water for irrigating my plants in case I need it. Then secondly, I wanted for South African terms, be rather in a cool climate, who uh, this uh, Hemmen art and definitely had an offer. And then thirdly, a very important point was with the struggle the country experienced on the leaf roll virus in the older vineyard across the country, I wanted to have a start from scratch with uh, virus-free plants to have a chance to be able to, to get uh, all the vineyards over the years ahead of me. Hemelinarda is no longer the most southerly home to vineyards in South Africa. That honor goes to windy Cape Agulhas, even further down the coast. And while Deso Pongratz and Timothy Hamilton Russell had been searching for southerly vineyard sites, there were some other factors that made the Hemelinarda special. As it turns out, the being further south aspect of it, and this applies to the whole Hemelinarda, not just Hamilton Russell, is probably a little less relevant than being quite close to the cold Benguela current coming up from Antarctica. I think at closest we're 1,500 meters or just under a mile away from the South Atlantic Ocean. And that cold body of water has a significant impact on our maximum temperatures. There's nowhere really in South Africa that you could approximate the latitudes of the great European wine growing regions for Pinot, Chardonnay, and what we'd think of as the slightly more restrained classically styled wines. We're just simply not far enough south in the Southern Hemisphere. One stroke of good fortune, obviously, the southeast are blowing straight off the base, significantly moderating temperatures. And this fact that the soil happened to be incredibly clay-rich, very similar clay component to the Cote de Nuit in Burgundy, 35 to 55%. And our farm basically chose Pinot Noir and Chardonnay as the most beautiful possible expression of that fortuitous site that we were lucky enough to own. Most Hemlinarda producers focus on growing estate fruit in just one of the three wards. But when winemaker Hannah Storm left Hamilton Russell in 2012, he took a different approach. I'm Hannah Storm from Storm Wines in the Yellow Order Valley, South Africa. 
we've only produced about produces wines from one of each of the, of the appellations in the Yemen So it's quite interesting with the same winemaking approach, with the culture approach, um, just to basically express terroir in the bottom. During my studies at Salamat University, at that time, my parents lived in Amman, it's very close to the Yemen Arda, just on the other side of the mountain. I used to do a lot of mountain biking and, and jogging on the wine farms, and Hamilton Russell at that stage was obviously uh, focusing only on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and it took me and my bike. I really crossed the land quite often there, and also in my final year, I did my seminar on Pinot Noir, and then I was also doing my compulsory internship in my final year at Hamilton Russell Vineyard. So it was basically a natural uh, progression. And started off a bit in my final year with Pinot Noir seminar and then on doing my internship at Amazon Russell. So it's been at Pinot Noir for the past uh, two decades or so, 21 years. They say good things go to those who wait. And I think I did the right thing in those days to really have a good idea of what's going on in the valley. I'm involved in a few projects here on consulting for a bit of vineyard development and so forth um, in the greater Yemen order. And by doing that, I really started to know the soils quite well and the different terroirs. And in 2008 to 2010, I was involved in just advising the planting of Pinot Noir and the Yemen which is on the spread of vineyards. And then in my back of my head, I always knew that there's an opportunity for me to really try to make something special of that wine, should, should one at, at the end of the day. And that's actually worked out very well. I think with the Yemen that we have um, established the Ignis and the spread and, and then also the rich, the little pockets of vineyards are really very good expressions of the terroirs of these three appellations. And I'm actually very glad we stuck to the original plan, just focused on those specific vineyard types, although they're very small. I think one can really see some quality grapes growing there and low-yielding vineyards and good facilities and so forth. So it's a very exciting project that uh, has been going on from actually 2008 to 2012. We started off, our maiden vintages were only from the Yemen Arda Valley and the upper Yemen Arda Valley. So the decomposed granite soils in the upper Yemen Arda and the Bockerfeld Shale the right place for of the Yemen Arda Valley. So that was the maiden of 12. And then I got the opportunity to see the differences between the three appellations by adding um, in 2015 the rich Pinot Noir. And that's then from the same soils as the Yemen Arda Valley, but at a higher elevation, cooler slopes, and more exposed to the cool southeastern winds. The, the lowest appellation in the Yemen Arda is the Yemen Arda Valley appellation, which is characterized by the, by um, Bokasau's shale, heavy clay soils. And um, as we move up, to the upper Yemen Arda, we move into a more agronomic soil area and we have decomposed granite, more, more sandy components, less clay content. And then another another four kilometers up, we hit the, the ridge, which is also comprises of a Bokerfeld shale, but at a high elevation, cooler slopes with longer hang time. So, more or less, just from an altitude perspective, we are on uh, the Sierra Vineyard on 125 meters above sea level. That's around about 350. And then uh, we are on, on 225 meters above sea level, on about 700 feet um, on the Cygnus. And then we move to about 900 feet where, uh, at the Rich Vineyard. So, differences in the hang times, uh, more exposed to the wind, the higher you get. And then the main difference, I would say, is then from the soils. A bit more structure and texture from the heavy clay soils of the Yemen Arda Valley and the Yemen Arda Ridge, while there's a bit more femininity in the wines of the lighter structured soils of the upper Yemen Arda, the granite soils. So very different in, in texture, but then also you have the climatic influences, especially wind and exposure of sun, northern slopes as opposed to eastern slopes. So there's quite big differences. And, and as mentioned, our winemaking approach for those three are exactly the same. So... It's a 99% only a contribution of terroir and vineyard. It's almost like you're in a certain mold, in a Burgundian mold that's very traditional. And I always say stick to your knitting and do what works well for you. So 
we basically want to go 100% into barrels from maturation and fermentation, the Chardonnay, and, and it's all 228 litre barrels, all the Banyan Cooper. So all medium toasted and uh, some blonde barrels and so forth, but uh, only there for us to add some spice to the wine. So we don't want to impart any other flavors into the wine. We want to really, really honor the terroir and the purity of the fruit. But yeah, very traditional 228 litre barrels. Um, and up to 10 fold, um, we tend to use them about 8 to 10 times, and then only a little bit of uh, With a new, new oak component, that's probably about 20 to 25% maximum, and then the rest all old wood, and as mentioned, just uh, to add some spice. I was very proud of the way the demarcations committee approached the delimitation of our three appellations. Some years ago, the criticism was there was a lot of mutual backscratching amongst people as to the convenience of appellations, that it fell along municipal boundaries and had very little to do with terroir. I can assure you that when these appellations were drawn up, convenience was not first and foremost in mind. It was very much about terroir, to the point where we wanted one appellation for the entire Onrust River Valley leading up to the watershed over which Himalanada Ridge lies. We wanted all that to be Himalanada Valley. Technically and geographically, that was fact. But the upper Himalanada Valley has decomposed granite soils, where the Himalanada Valley has very clay-rich Bockefeld shale soils, and the resulting wines are beautifully different. So it would have been misleading to put that all under one ward. And it was actually much to the shame of Dave and I who were agitating for the simplicity of a single ward. It was very sensible to have broken it up like that. This used to be a political minefield fraught with (laughs) all kinds of diplomatic hurdles. And it's become so clear in people's minds now how those styles differ that I can express it, and I must just make the point, this is my personal view. But my personal view has also been heavily shaped by people like Hannah Storm, an ex-winemaker of ours who is making a wine from each of the three appellations, which he's done now for some years. Same winemaking, same barrel approach, same kind of ripeness levels at picking, consistently three different styles each year. And Peter Allen Finlayson has made some beautiful wines from three different appellations, the three different appellations, not every year. We work with Tesla's doll from Himalanada Ridge, and we can compare that to Himalanada Valley. So there's this collective database of experience and wisdom over many vintages, how the styles of those three appellations differ. So albeit my personal view, I think it would be a relatively widely shared view. So Himalanada Valley, closest to the sea, as you enter the Himalanada area, overlooking Hermanus with the heavy clay soils, tends to have the most structure and spice-driven, darker, more muscular-styled Pinot Noirs. And we're doing it through Pinot, which reflects Appalachian so beautifully. Chardonnay is a little less clear. When you move to the upper Himalanada Valley, you move to lighter-structured soils with decomposed granite, and a component of sandstone. Some clay is the subsoil in some areas, but significantly less clay than Himalanada Valley. And there you've got a a, a finer, more elegant, less muscular and structured style with a slightly more lifted open red fruit character, a little softer and easier and more forthcoming earlier. And then when you leave 
upper Himalanada Valley with its decomposed granite and sandstone in the hills, you move to Himalanada Ridge, and there the plantings are overwhelmingly back on the heavy clay that we have in Himalanada Valley. But it's higher up, it's further from the sea, it has probably a greater multitude of aspects, so it very much now depends on which property you look at, and it, it's very close to some fairly large mountains. So different sunshine regimes and all that kind of stuff. And there we find the wines are somewhere between Himalanada Valley's muscular, dark, spice-driven structure and the easy, open, elegant, fine, more perfumed red fruit of the upper Himalanada Valley. It's a bluer fruit profile. It's a softer, easier style than Himalanada Valley, but a little more structured than the upper Himalanada Valley. And it's fascinating to see how that is proving to be fairly consistent year on year, almost regardless of vintage. That's all great for Pinot Noir, but how does Chardonnay express itself in the Hemlinarda Valley? I think we get a bit more of, of the citrus minerality in the Chardonnay, the cool climate. So I would say here in the Hemlinarda, maybe a bit more texture, but a bit more uh, richness, white paper, citrus characters, minerality while a bit more crispiness and longer finishes and so forth, and the elegance and sharpness, I would say. But I think there's a very fast uh, golden thread running through those three areas, um, especially if you look at the cooler sites in, uh, in Stellenbosch. I know where the leaf attempts um, uh, source their fruit from the Alleberg, and that's the Stellenbosch fruit, the Uber Mere, uh, then obviously the Elgin, the Emerald Otter Valley. Um, I do think the Emerald Otter Valley is politically stand out due to the fact uh, that they have a bit more of the white pear minerality and richness, I would say. That's what I found here, especially the ones that are done in the clay source, but as a whole, the Yemen order is a very distinctive character in the Chardonnay. Also, it seems like we get away with a bit lower alcohols. With lower alcohols here, we can also show quite enough richness without being lean. So I remember our 2016 Creator Chardonnay had an alcohol of 12.23, which is extremely low, and one would expect a wine that's really, really lean and perhaps watery, but I'm still today very excited about the wine, and the wine has enough richness and viscosity with length at that low alcohol level. So I think we're very privileged to be close to the ocean, with effect, including the effect of the cool Atlantic, and then obviously also the, the rich clay soil that we farm on. Chardonnay and Pinot Noir may be the top dogs in the Hamonarda, but there are plenty of other varieties planted. Anthony himself has Sauvignon Blanc and Pinotage growing at his Ashbourne and Southern Wright farms, and a few producers are working with Rhone varieties, including Creation. We came from a Swiss wine estate who was on the other mountainside of Burgundy. So our Swiss wine estate was a purely Pinot Noir estate with a little bit of Chardonnay. And as you might know, in Switzerland, we have all a little bit of Chasselas. But when I moved from Switzerland over here, I wasn't desperately thought I just need to make Pinot Noir because so far in my life, I pretty much was just sticking to Pinot Noir. And I, I do love Pinot Noir, but of course, I also would like have the freedom to experiment with a little bit different cultivars than just Pinot Noir. So obviously, we planted some Pinot Noir and some Chardonnay uh, on our estate. But to the fact that it was pretty much unknown from the soils and the climatic circumstances, uh, we just knew it is a touch warmer maybe than what we would experience in our Swiss vineyards. So we took the approach and say, let's rather plant by side of Pinot and Chardonnay some different cultivars just to see what does best. And I think in that kind of game, when you don't really try it out yourself, it's difficult to predict. So we planted by side of the main cultivars, the Pinot and Chardonnay, we planted quite a bit of uh, Rhone cultivars. We planted Syrah, 
Grenache, we did Viognier, and then just for fun, we also gave a trial to Merlot Cab and Petit Verdot from the Bordeaux style. And so basically it was our first phase in the experiment. And now, after 15 to 20 years, we slowly but surely start to maybe slightly narrowing back down to the cultivars we think are the most suitable for this place, not just purely climatically, also because of the different soil types. Obviously, Chardin and Pinot Noir does exceptional well in our place climatically and from stylistic of the wines and how the wines get received in the consumer palette and the trade. But uh, that said, we're also starting to building up a, a very nice reputation for, for Rhone wines. In the moment right now, we're leading on the white wines with the Viognier, but nevertheless, we're also expanding the white wine Rhone the cultivars uh, quite significant. We, we, we planted Hussan who's in production, who is very promising. I will have soon Grenache Blanc in production, a little bit of Marsan. So we're basically aiming for a white grown blend with a lot of freshness and maybe a little bit less opulence what you sometimes might find in the Rhone Valley in France. To the fact that we are slightly cooler, we should be able to preserve a touch more acidity. The idea behind would be that we could achieve a little bit more freshness with a similar tasting profile as this beautiful uh, Rhone Valley wine smell in the white wine. On the red wine, Syrah obviously does incredible well. When you look to the Burgundy side and you're sliding from Burgundy a little bit further south, you're heading to the Northern Rhone, Gotrotti, who is not that far off from Pinot Noir country. And also stylistically, when you start to drinking a slightly more aged Botrotti wine, suddenly they're not really far off from Pinot Noir. So I think when you are quite good with Pinot Noir, I think there's a good chance that you also will, will handle a Syrah very well in the cellar. And I think for that reason, we felt very comfortable also heading into the Syrah section. And I think slowly but surely we're starting to building up our reputation with, uh, with single Syrahs, but also in the blend combination with uh, Syrah Grenache on our estate. The thing is, obviously, stylistically, there's different approaches when it comes to Syrah, but when we're talking Syrah, it doesn't necessarily need to be in very hot places growing. It can be slightly more moderate, slightly cooler places. And when, when we talk the person through why we not just producing Pinot Noir here is, I think it's a very rewarding place to grow vineyards uh, when you have uh, such a long window of ideal weather for ripening. So we're starting off in February with picking our Pinot Noirs and then we're heading into early to mid-March where we're getting the first batches of Syrah in and comes end of March, early April, we might maybe then also take our last uh, small blocks of caps of in your inn. And through that whole phase from January to April, we normally experience here very, very good uh, ripening patterns. That means there's not too much humidity, there's obviously not heavy heat waves, and the weather is reasonably stable to just pick one after the other. And I sometimes explain to the person, we make a solid two harvests here. We, we harvest first our Chardonnay, Sauvignons, and Pinot Noirs, and when the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir is all nicely packed away in our barrels. Then we go for the second round and then we start to go into the kind of Rhone cultivars and make the second harvest with the later cultivars. And I think it depends 
what you want to achieve. But we quite like to make wine. I like to harvest. So for me, it's not really a, a huge stress level that instead of maybe just picking for three or four weeks grapes to, to make maybe eight weeks of harvest and just to work in the winery to make wine. Chenin Blanc may be South Africa's most planted variety, but it's relatively rare in the Cape South Coast. However, there is a small amount planted in Hamelinarda. We do a little Chenin Blanc. Normally when you see creation on the label, it's 100% grapes from our farm, our two farms now he involved. But we do have one project I couldn't resist uh, further down in the valley. Uh, a person bought the farm and we suddenly had access to uh, two hectares of Chenin Blanc in the upper Hamelinarda Valley and basically uh, secured the grapes and they're coming out to us. And it was a farm uh, at the time who was planted by uh, Tokara from Stellenbosch, but then they sold that farm because I think logistically it wasn't so easy to handle the farm so far off from Stellenbosch. So the new owners just basically gave us then access to this grape. So the, the vineyards are 15 years or 16 years old, very nice Chenin Blanc grapes, definitely when you would put it in context to South Africa, we call it the cool climate Chenin Blanc. The farm named Siberia, maybe not the real Siberia, but for South African terms, it's a pretty cold place to grow vineyards. right south-facing up on a mountain slope, and it doesn't see a lot of sunlight in the late afternoon. And I think it gives completely a different expression of Chenin Blanc you might maybe uh, see from the slightly warmer places like Paarl, Svartland, or Franschuk, Stellenbosch. Nonetheless, the Hemelinarda is often referred to as South Africa's Burgundy, and it has attracted attention from Burgundians almost from the beginning. Bouchard Finlayson, the second winery in the valley, was originally a partnership between Hamilton Russell's first winemaker, Peter Finlayson, and Paul Bouchard of Bouchard Père Fille in Beaune, France. More recently, Martin Priur of Domaine Jacques Priur began a collaboration with JC. The valley continues to attract talent and investment from both South African and international wine figures. We do have quite a lot of other winemakers too. We have a, a steady exchange into the world about other wine regions, winemakers. And over the years, we, we became quite good friends. And we always expressed this interest to be part of a project to also have some vineyards in South Africa. So four or five years ago, we then had the opportunity to expand our farm a little bit further back, two kilometers. And there was an additional piece of land who we then fought maybe for our own. It was not really necessary that we would fought it for ourselves, but when we do it together with someone, maybe it would be quite a nice little project to play around. And so we, we bought together that piece of land, and we actually this year did the first wine together. We planted two and a half hectares uh, Chardonnay, as the person normally do from Burgundy, and mm -hmm. a little bit of Pinot Noir. I mean, we will see. Obviously, now the vineyards are quite young, and we have to just start to make our first little trials. But I think it's more also about the exchange of information and to have a good time and just try to, to learn from each other's side. And I think that is most probably less the commercial approach than more the kind of the fun approach you place. On top of that, I did this year also the first time a project with Fritz Becker. He's one of the top, top producers in the Pfalz in Germany. Also a person we knew over the years, and he suddenly said, oh, I would like to do something also in South Africa. And so we said, look, instead of you buying your own farm and having a lot of worries to be not every day here to actually run the farm, let's rather try to make a project together. So we also make now a wine together. So he was out here 
over the harvest season and we crushed together five tons of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir from our farms and we will try to then over the years also to build up a brand together mainly in the German market with him and there I think it's the same element in for us basically having a nice exchange with these persons and you always learn huh? there's different approaches to make wine and not the one is the only right one so when you have this kind of open mentality if you learn much faster and with much more fun to achieve better quality we you know in 1991 coming up for 30 years ago when i came back we were the only people selling wine in the area and there are 22 of them and i'm very excited that uh, book and notes Clough has bought property from sumerich and will be building a cellar and will focus on pinot and chardonnay in the upper Yemelanada Valley, and they're going to do a wonderful job. There are rumors of other well-capitalized and very quality-focused people also looking for land in the area. Not a single ex-winemaker of ours has left to go to another area. They've all stayed to make Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in the Yemelanada. And I think that's something about the appropriateness of the choice of those varieties and also just the joys and beauty of making wine here. I think we've got from Peter Finlayson, who founded Bushard Finlayson after he left Hamilton Russell, Storm Kroshdar, who founded Wellhaven after leaving Hamilton Russell, Hannes Storm, who founded Storm Wines after leaving Hamilton Russell, and just prior to him, Kevin Grant, who founded Ataraxia after leaving Hamilton Russell. They're all making Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. All those properties are making Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in the Himalanada. And I think that kind of says something about the excitement and beauty and the appropriateness of the area. I'm very excited about the future. We showcase what South Africa can do when they get more variety focused, when the choice is not what does the market want, but what works best for us in our area. And when production is small and smallish and high quality and family owned. I think it's a very, very wonderful place to make wine. always like to get a sommelier point of view on the wines we're talking about. So I turned to Brian Kulik out in the Bay Area to get his impression of the wines. Brian, you were a big fan of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir long before you discovered Hemlinarda, I assume. Most definitely. Obviously, as a sommelier, you're introduced very young to Pinot and Chardonnay coming from Burgundy, and also some of the fine examples coming from the New World, uh, like our backyard here in San Francisco, Napa Valley, Sonoma Coast. So most definitely. How did you come across Hamilton Arda wines? Well, actually, I had come across Hamilton Russell at a program I inherited, found the wines to be shocking, didn't know much about them, kind of had that connotation that a lot of young, ignorant Psalms have, that if it's not from one of these more prestigious countries or regions, it's probably not going to be good, and uh, man, was I wrong. So that was my introduction into Hamilton Arda. The Chardonnay was the Hamilton Russell. I, I forget the vintage, but it obviously changed my perspective very quickly. And then just this last year, I was on a trip with Wosa and yourself, and we visited the Hamilton Arda uh, Appalachian, and uh, it, it definitely changed me forever on multiple levels. Right. I remember you being really taken with the area. Aside oh, from yeah. just the quality of the wines, is there something else special that you found in the Hamilton Arda? Well, uh, the geography. I mean, one of the most interesting things you talk about, obviously, is the age of the soils there. You know, 10 million years when you're talking about Napa. 
45, 50 million years when you're talking about burgundy. Here you're talking about an area that's hundreds of millions of years old, 300, 450 plus million years old. And to kind of learn geography and then to see it in front of you in such a stunning presentation was also just mind bending. This very tight valley uh, surrounded by mountains. And also sometimes we read about subregions and learn about them, but to actually be able to visually see them so organized in nature with the valley, the upper, and the ridge, it was just stunning. And that's why we visit areas as sommeliers, to have a better understanding. But it's the first time I visited an area that just stained my memory, hopefully forever, because I, I definitely don't want to forget the beauty of that valley. And it's, it's geography and it's uh, microclimate. Yeah, they didn't name it heaven and earth by accident. <laughs> they did not. So you, you say that the distinction between the three wards was quite clear to you. In the glass and to the eye? Yeah, we were tasting a series of wines, but they were all very controlled tastings, which was nice. Obviously, there's kind of the generalities with the valley, a little softer, a little rounder. In the upper valley, you're actually technically the closest, I think about nine miles to the actual ocean. So very cool there. And then the ridge, obviously, where you can get some moisture, obviously you have elevation. So all those styles of wine, I mean, as far as the, the grapes that you're going to taste, very much fall in line with what you expect, you know, kind of plump, a little rounder from the valley floor, a little cooler, higher tone, and then just a touch more masculine with a little bit more grit coming from the ridge. But of course, we're still dealing with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and we're dealing with producers that know how to handle it. So they were all still very elegant. So if you were to be introducing these wines or or even just one of these wines to someone who grew up drinking California Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, is there anything you'd say to prepare them or do the wines just present themselves? Well, I, I think the one thing that kind of stands out is, of course, if you went winery to winery, not that there's a ton in, in Hemelinarda, but you're going to see little nuances and tweaks and difference, maybe cooperage, things like that. But you're dealing with a lot of the same clones down there. You're dealing with a lot of winemakers who all learned at Hamilton Russell. So they learned restraint. This is an area that got it right, right off the bat. Now, I'm sure if you talk to them, maybe they didn't quite do something right in the beginning. They might have used a champagne clone of Pinot Noir that was a little thin and eventually got Dijon 115, whatever it may be. But the biggest thing to me was just the ultimate balance. When you're dealing with California, there's such variation. You can have the big, plump, oaky, buttery over the top. And you can have something from Ted Lemon, Literize, Sonoma Coast, which is on par with these wines, which is on par with Burgundy. There's just a lot more variation. I think you have a more controlled subject in Hamelinarda. And I think if you buy a bottle of Chardonnay or Pinot Noir from that region, from one of you know the two dozen producers, you're going to be happy. You're going to be pretty sure there's going to be quality there. And you're going to find a balanced wine as opposed to California, where there's a lot of producers and there's a lot of pitfalls you can fall into and, and not necessarily be happy with the style of the wine that you purchased. Now, I know we sent uh, a few bottles over to you before we had this conversation. Do you want to tell us? I think it's one did. of them. One of them is a repeat from your first ever Hamilton Arda wine. Yes, this was the 18 Hamilton Russell Chardonnay. We tasted the 17 when we were down there. If memory serves me correct, this 18 was lovely. A lot of focus right out the gate when I opened it. It had a restaurant-level chill on it. 
was very strict, very to the point, green apple, green almond, very high toned. Obviously tasted it, then I let it sat, let it come up to room temperature a little bit as I would enjoy it during a meal. And as you would expect, a little bit more of that vanilla, a little bit more of that creme fraiche came out in it, uh, a little bit of the malolactic fermentation. There's not a ton on this wine, but just enough to give it a little roundness and a little sleekness and silkiness that I like in my Chardonnay. And those green almonds became Marcona almonds, and the green apple became yellow, golden, delicious apple. So it was really the evolution of a young wine in a glass that blew me away, and all phases of it I, I absolutely loved, and I, I think it would stand up. I think it does stand up with some of the best Chardonnays in the world. Yeah, that's become just a textbook example of what the Helmonarda can do with Chardonnay. And then I think you have another classic example. Honest Storm was the winemaker at Hamilton Russell for many years, and this mm -hmm. was the, the Freda Pinot Noir, right? Yes. So this was a 2016. This was remarkable. A little bit more body, a little bit more power behind it. Much like Balanced New World Wines, it didn't get away from the fruit. Going back to your question about Napa, Sonoma, you know, California producers that I think are the best aren't afraid of sunlight because that's what we have here. They're not afraid of a little richness. And this wine has it. And I think that's what you want out of a Pinot. I mean, the best vintages in Burgundy are usually the warmest, the ones that have higher alcohol, usually land around 13.5. So I just love this guy. Bramley fruit, wild fruit quality, nice little touch of tannin on the finish, but that acidity, that leanness, that freshness goes throughout it for a really long finish. This is a wine, even though it's 16, you could lay it down easily for another five to eight and be very happy with it. Longer if you wanted to, but I think that'd be a nice little window for it. And it'll definitely turn some heads and change some people's mind about New World Pinot in general and definitely what's coming out of South Africa, Hemelinarda. And Hannes is unique in that he's the only person in the Hemelinarda making a wine, a Pinot Noir specifically, from each of the different wards. So you can do a horizontal on a restaurant list and actually see the, the different expressions of the different wards. Yeah. And then when we were there, we got to, to meet him. And I, I couldn't believe I didn't know this, that there's a storm down in the central coast, Santa Rita, I believe. So I'm anxious to get down there once traveling is permitted again. Um, really interested to see kind of the, the brothers varying styles and how they're similar and how they contrast. Yeah, absolutely. I've visited Ernst Storm down there in Santa Barbara and really fascinating to kind of think of what they're both doing with very similar grapes and similar conditions, but still very different at the same time. Yep. Right. Yep. Great. Well, it was great to catch up with you, and I'm glad you're still enjoying totally. Hamlin Arda wines. Is there anything else about them that we didn't touch on that you think is worth mentioning for people who are listening? Well, I think the biggest thing is just with uh, Pinot Noir in general, and especially New World Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, is don't be afraid to lay them down. Like I just referenced, this is a 2016. Obviously, we're in 2020. So this has been in bottle for quite some time, and it's still drinking very young, very fresh. Pinot Noir is meant to age. Don't be afraid. If you are going to open a young one, put in a decanter for an hour, an hour and a half. Same with young Chardonnay. But also, if you bought a few bottles, throw one in your cellar, throw one in your wine fridge, and kind of forget about it for a few years. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. I hope you enjoyed this dive into the Hemlin Art of Valley. You can find more resources and links to the various producers we talked to at our website, 
wosa.us. Also on the website, check out the Wines of South Africa Psalm Session. If you want to learn more about South African wine, here's your chance. First, get together a group of friends on Zoom or whatever video conference platform you prefer. Have each one pick up a bottle of South African wine, and we'll arrange for a sommelier to kick off your online party with an hour-long rundown of the wines. You'll find more details on our website. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends. Or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. Next episode, we'll cast a different sort of lens on the South African wine scene. Rather than looking at a region or a grape, we'll be talking about vines. In particular, South Africa's intriguing collection of old vines, which are producing some of the country's top wines in many different parts of the Cape. Thank you.